0: This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling.
1: Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Uh, Kyler, thanks for being here again today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Are you enjoying being a co-host, uh, filling in for Parisa while she's on vacation? How are you enjoying I this?
2: am. I am. Big shoes, right? But um, I'm very much enjoying our our um, time together. So thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here. I'll, I'll be honest, it's a lot more fun having you on here than doing it by myself, which is what I <laughs> did the episode or two before uh, last week. So it's good to have a, a sidekick to bounce ideas around with. So thanks for thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. So we better than
2: nothing,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not exactly what I was saying, but yeah, better <laughs> than nothing, and, and then some. So um, yeah, thanks. Thanks again. But uh, so, what we have an exciting show for you today. We're going to cover a few different topics. Uh, we have a couple of guests we're going to have on the show um, later in the show. We're going to have uh, Stuart Robb, who's the vice president of Third Stage UK, and we have we had about a. It was about a 60-minute Q&A discussion uh, a few days ago. We, we actually filmed it live in front of a studio audience, although it wasn't really in front of a studio audience. It was just a live stream. But saying it was filmed live in front of a studio audience just sounds cooler. Um, so we, we had a live Q&A where I had asked Stuart a bunch of questions, and as did the audience, about digital transformation strategies and best practices in general. And it's a really good conversation. So we're going to play you a clip uh, or play that clip of that Q&A session that he and I had uh, just a few days ago. And before we get to Stuart, uh, we're also going to have an interview that uh, Sarah Dokovich had with both Brian Potts and I. And Brian Potts is a managing partner and chief client officer at Third Stage. Uh, He and I were interviewed by Sarah to talk about uh, cloud systems and cloud technologies and the pros and cons of of cloud systems. So we're going to play you that clip here in a little bit. But before we do that, I uh, wanted to uh, talk a little bit or turn a, a bit to social media. And, and we get a lot of engagement and questions and suggestions for topics and all that good stuff on our different social media platforms, whether it be LinkedIn or Twitter or YouTube or uh, whatever the case may be. So uh, you've had a chance to look through some of the threads and some of the comments and questions and discussion that we've been having on social media in recent days. What, what are some of the things you're seeing out there?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of great dialogue, specifically following up after our Digital Stratosphere conference just a few weeks ago. Um, and one of, one of the things that we've really been seeing is what are, what are some pros and cons of implementing a more niche system, such as a CRM system, or an HTM system versus a broader ERP system? Obviously we know ERP is more expensive, it can take more time. And what if you're an organization kind of just needing that one system, um, but could benefit from a broader ERP system? Can you kind of take us through what that thought process may be or any recommendations you might have?
1: Sure. So I think this is a, a good topic that's a ongoing debate and philosophical discussion that I don't know will ever be resolved. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot like, you know, the debate about, you know, who the best sports franchise in history might be or, you know, who the, who the best politician ever might be. No one's ever really going to agree on that. And I think that's true here for this discussion. But I think the, the thing that's important to think about this uh, through or the lens that's important to think about this through is looking at it from the perspective of what are those trade-offs and pros and cons and, and really you know fully recognizing what those trade-offs are and being able to align those trade-offs with what your priorities are and you know using that as the filter for how you make the right decision for your organization um, just to give you a quick preface to the to my response you know a lot of a lot of clients we work with you'll will find that that the best of breed approach is the best answer. And we'll find other clients where that doesn't make any sense. They should be going with a single, you know, broader ERP system. So it it really just depends. A lot of organizations come in when they hire us, they come in with the assumption that they're going to go with a single ERP system. But when you peel back the layers of the onion and get to know their business and their priorities and all that good stuff, you find that maybe that's not the right answer. So that's the first thing is recognizing that there is no one good answer. There's no one size fits all answer, but the important trade-offs to think about are, you know, obviously with a, with a core ERP system where you're using one single enterprise-wide system, you're going to have a common user interface, a common system that you're all using, a common database, and the workflows are a little bit more integrated and seamless across the organization. So that can be highly effective for organizations that are really trying to drive more commonality and standardization as an organization. But a lot of organizations find that, hey, that's not really our biggest issue. We're not trying to drive commonality necessarily or efficiency. What we're trying to drive is maybe a little more flexibility and a better fit within each of the different areas of our business, in which case finding a separate CRM system or a separate human capital management or ERP supply chain management, whatever the system might be or systems might be, um, those can be better fits uh, in, that, in that regard. So I think it's a trade-off between two things. One is standardization flexibility, And then the other would be um, the idea that ERP systems have a lot of upside advantage, but they also have the disadvantage of trying to be everything to everyone, which no one system is going to be. And as a result, most organizations find that they're making some sort of compromise by deploying a single ERP system. For example, what's the best answer for finance might not be the best ERP system for your sales group or your manufacturing group or whatever the case may be. So that, that's the sort of trade-off you have to think about. And then maybe another trade-off that's maybe not quite as important, but still something worth thinking about, is the level of impact that it, it might have or this decision might have on your IT staff. So if you're choosing best of breed, that's going to put more pressure on your IT staff to be able to maintain multiple systems, um, have a solid architecture, manage the integration, manage multiple sources of data. And you may or may not have the skill sets internally to be able to handle that. Um, on the flip side, you know, you don't have that strain with ERP, single ERP systems, but you have the other trade-offs primarily from a change management perspective that become more difficult with a single ERP system. So there's a few things that we typically advise our clients to think about in that decision.
2: Yeah, definitely. And and so is there a, does it matter for the size of the company? You know, you touched on resourcing, I, I think I always kind of assumed that ERP systems are needed by bigger global companies and small businesses might not be able to afford that or might not have the resources to do that. Is that um, assumption, does that make sense? Or is that something that you you kind of say uh, a system really depends on the, the alignment of the organization and their goals?
1: I'd say it's a little bit of both and maybe some additional things as well. I mean, it you certainly... I'd say there's probably two two opposite sides of a spectrum where you see ERP systems, single ERP systems be more common. You have the larger multinational companies where, to your point, they're, they're big. They're trying to drive standardization and efficiency and commonality across the business. And usually those bigger companies have grown quite a bit over the years through acquisition and organically. And so they're dealing with all these disparate systems. And so they're trying to kind of push the needle over towards let's just get everything under one umbrella, one system. And then on the other extreme, you have small companies, really small companies that are, you know, say five, ten, or $20 million in annual revenue. They're trying to figure out a good replacement for QuickBooks or whatever their base accounting software might've been. And in those cases, um, they're probably too small to deal with the complexity of all these different ERPs or these different best of breed systems. So a lot of times they're good candidates for single ERP systems because, um, a, they, they usually haven't been around as long and so the processes aren't as mature um, and it's easier for them to change and adapt to the software. B, they're usually not as complex because they are smaller. So a, a vanilla ERP system can oftentimes work better for them. Um, and C, you know, they usually don't have the IT staff to be able to support you know, multiple systems. It's really the mid-market, you know, when you get into like the, up, the bigger small companies and the mid-market, maybe even the smaller big companies, that's the space where the needle can really go either way. Oftentimes, and a lot of that just comes down to how complex you are. If you're a complex, diverse organization, you're going to be less likely to find a good, solid, single ERP system. But if you're a larger or you know mid-sized company that has fairly standard processes that aren't that unique in in many ways, then an ERP, a single ERP system may make more sense. Yeah, yeah, that
2: that um, that makes a lot of sense and and one of our audience members had another kind of deep philosophical question about what is the difference between digital transformation, that kind of sounds like a, a fancy word, and uh, ERP implementation? What what are the key differences between those that, that clients or our audience members should consider?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say first and foremost, it, they don't necessarily need to be either or, or mutually exclusive. It could be that you're implementing ERP and you're doing an ERP implementation, but it's part of a broader digital transformation. Uh, but in general, you know, I, I view ERP implementations as sort of a, a back office focused, efficiency focused technology initiative that's focused on getting, you know, a core backbone in place for an organization, which has benefits, it can drive efficiencies and um, reduce complexity and whatnot. I view digital transformation as more of a, hey, we're going to totally rethink how we do things. We're not just doing an incremental ERP upgrade or replacing an old ERP system for a new one. It's more of a, let's rethink our business model. Let's rethink our organizational design, our culture. So it's a little bit more of a a bigger change, I would say. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. And it, it's important for clients and organizations to really understand what exactly you want to accomplish. And it's okay to do either one as long as you're all focused and aligned on that same you're all headed in that same direction. Uh, too often companies expect a digital transformation as something more material, you know, as far as changes of their business, but then they end up with uh, basically just replacing what they already had. And which would have been okay if that was their intent from the start, but then you end up with people, you know, not being on the same page with what that's gonna look like. So I think getting that alignment on is this an incremental upgrade or is this more of a transformative type of change is important. And a lot of that's gonna be driven by your your industry. You know, if you're in the retail industry, for example, or food and beverage we're seeing a lot of food and beverage organizations that are going through a lot of growth right now especially post pandemic so they're sort of being forced into uh more of a transform a transformation whereas other industries maybe they have the luxury to choose between do we want to make more of an incremental change or are we a bit more risk tolerant and we're willing to take more of a a leap in, in the whole transformation so those are some of the things that come to mind for that
2: yeah yeah all good stuff um one of my last questions is, I love loved this one on um, your YouTube channel. Um, obviously, you are a main thought leader in the the industry when it comes to digital transformation. And one of our audience members had a question on kind of what type of ERP focused books or other resources do you consume? Um, you know, to stay up on trends or or what does that look like for you? I mean, as as working with you as a colleague, I know you're constantly you know innovating and looking at new ways to bring this information to your audience but i thought this was a super interesting question if you had any recommendations on on other resources
1: yeah that's a it's a great question and and uh i don't know if i have the all the answers i, I don't have all the answers for that but I, I can tell you what i do what i do myself what i find to be helpful is um first of all you know most of my consumption of erp and digital transformation specific knowledge most of that is through experience and with clients and you know, the writing and the thought leadership we provide and our team provide. So a lot of it's sort of collaborating with our team and learning from our own team and our clients. That's where I sort of consume the knowledge I have on transformation itself. But so when I read and when I try to really, quote unquote, educate myself in a way that's sort of outside the realm of day-to-day consulting, I usually end up reading, first of all, I, I don't read fiction. All I read is nonfiction, but it's usually, it's usually more like business focused. I usually don't read about I'll read a little bit about technology trends at a, at a high level, but I, I focus more on reading stuff about business and change and leadership. Um, so for example, I mean, some of the books I've really enjoyed over the years are like Good to Great by Jim Collins is one of my favorite books, or um, there's a lot of business strategy type books I'll read. I, I read Harvard Business Review a lot. So I tend to read more of the call it just general strategy stuff. And I try to apply that general high level stuff. I try to apply it to what we do with digital transformation, and a lot of that stuff is very relevant. And I think my advice for people that are trying to learn more about the industry is to not only think about technology and what's happening with blockchain and machine learning and the cloud and all this stuff that's happening that's fun to learn about. You, you need to know that stuff, but um, I don't think enough people really look outside their own immediate uh, industry. So in other words, just looking at stuff like, uh, you know, reading a book about project management or change management or strategy or whatever interests you that's sort of outside the realm of, you know, the the immediate technology, but could still help, help you be a better consultant or transformation practitioner. So those are some of the, that's some of the advice uh, that I would have, but yeah, good degrees. One of my, that's definitely one of my top five favorites, Uh, even like in search of excellence from the eighties. That was a, that's an old book, but I really like it. And I think it's still relevant today. Um, there's a book about McKinsey 7s model that I really enjoy. I don't recall the name of it, but that was a good book as well. So there's there's a lot, there's a lot like that that I typically read. Yeah,
2: maybe you should write a book or start a book club.
1: You're, you're hitting you a yeah, the book club. Yeah, that's a good idea. You're hitting a sore <laughs> spot because I've wanted to write a book now for about ten years and I still haven't. Mm-hmm. So um, I probably maybe maybe I'll read a little bit less and start to write a little bit more. Than, than yeah help me along. Yeah,
2: there. definitely. Well, good. Well, we'll definitely invite this this user here on YouTube to your book tour because they yes, obviously are very interested in that. So um, <laughs> it right. seems like now is the time. But as we kind of transition into our episode today, we've gotten a lot of questions about Cloud ERP and kind of what that trend transition looks like for our industry. We've done a lot of blogs and videos on it. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to think, or hear your feedback on if you are considering a cloudier up your system or function or anything like that what are some some like maybe top three key considerations that um, that you should be aware of in going through this process
1: yeah so the first thing you know I always like to start with the bad news get that out of the way first is that you know you have, you have to recognize that cloud systems aren't in my opinion aren't all they they're cracked up to be. I mean, the industry is definitely going that way. There's no doubt that, you know, in a few years from now, most, if not all, software vendors are going to be deploying their technology through the cloud. And most, you know, organizations at some point in the near future are probably going to be deplo- consuming most of their technology through the cloud. So it's not really a matter of questioning the the viability or the trend of cloud. But I think that the key is to recognize the dark side of it and the risks of cloud because uh, it's too easy to, get lulled into complacency or lulled into this, you know, state of utopia that isn't necessarily true. And it's important to recognize a a few things. One is that uh, regardless of what industry analysts and other consultants will tell you, cloud systems do cost more in the long term, for the most part. Um, I know, you know, software vendor sales reps hate when I say that. They tell me, no, no, you were wrong. It saves money because now you don't have to have the IT infrastructure and you don't need all that staff. The reality is, is, okay, some of that is true, but you're also paying a higher subscription fee annually for eternity. That payment's not going away. It's a lot like leasing a car versus buying a car. Uh, when you lease a car, you, you've you got a sweet new car every couple of years, but you also have a sweet big payment uh, every month that you're making. So that might be all right. That might be the right answer for you, but you just have to recognize it for what it is. You are paying more money for cloud systems in most cases. So it's going to cost you more, and probably most importantly, When it comes to implementation, the implementation isn't nearly as easy as cloud vendors will make you think because they, on the surface, yes, I could log in right now and I could probably go to NetSuite's website or SAP or someone, or I could talk to someone and probably within 24 hours, I could probably get immediate access to an instance of their software uh, on my computer. So in theory, you think that's great. That's gonna be so easy to deploy. It took me 24 hours to get access and I'm I'm in there. I can start messing, messing with stuff now. But the reality is when it comes to implementing for your business, cloud technology generally doesn't help that. It doesn't materially help that process along any faster or cheaper. So you still have to go through the grunt work and the hard work of changing processes and changing people. And that's the part that is most difficult for for most organizations. Plus things like on the technical side, you still have to think about, you still have to configure the software. You still have to do data migration. You still have to do all these different things that cloud doesn't really fix. It might be the best deployment option for now, but it's not necessarily going to save time and money in the way that software vendors will try to convince you. So those are a few things that, you know, I don't know if that was two or three, but that that's a handful of things to consideration yeah. to have when you're thinking about cloud technologies.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like um, you and Brian are really going to dive into the details with Sarah um, in just a bit here, right?
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to keep building on that thread there and talking more about the pros and cons cl- uh, the pros and cons of cloud technologies and cloud systems. So as you're thinking about your digital transformation journey or your technology journey, you can be aware of what those potential strengths and weaknesses and pitfalls are. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control.
3: Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
1: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. And we wanted to uh, shift gears a bit now and, and continue on the thread that, that Kyler had brought up right before the break, which is this whole concept of uh, pros, and cl- pros and cons of cloud technologies and cloud systems. And uh, before that, we actually had Sarah Dokovich, who interviewed uh, Brian Potts from Third Stage as well as myself, just to talk about some of the good, bad, and the ugly about cloud systems. So, uh, for those of you that don't know, Brian is a managing partner and chief client officer at Third Stage Consulting, so he's uh, been with us uh, since the start, uh, since day one, and uh, he knows the industry really well. So he and I are going to respond to some of Sarah's questions about cloud, so we'll turn it over to you, Sarah.
3: Eric and Brian, welcome to the show today.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us.
3: Of course. I'm excited to have both of you on today. It's going to be a fun discussion. So. Before we dive into the specifics, I'd love to discuss the evolution of cloud computing with you guys. You have both had careers that span 20 plus years in this industry, and you've each watched the most popular software vendors make the transition to from the the very beginning. So when cloud technology was first introduced, did you guys think it would soon take over as a prominent solution for businesses in the years to come?
1: Well, maybe I'll take a first cut at that. when when it first happened uh you know there was a predecessor to cloud back in the early 2000s maybe it was in the late 90s right early in my career when i was first starting out and it was called asp was what it was called and it was sort of a early version of cloud where companies would host their solutions off-site in, in some other location and it just had a different name uh, than what we call cloud today and for a while for a short period i remember there being a lot of hype behind asp And it never really got traction and people seemed to really like their client server on premise type of systems at the time. So it might have just been a movement that was a a bit ahead of its time. So it it had kind of come and gone one time already. And then it kind of emerged again in the, you know, call it around 2010 or maybe a little bit after that, where a lot of companies were starting to migrate to the cloud. And I've always been a bit of a skeptic with with cloud only because I felt like it was more the vendors that were interested in moving people to the cloud because it was more uh, recurring revenues, higher profits. There's a lot of reasons why they might like the cloud solutions. And I was always skeptical of whether or not it was really the best fit for for organizations implementing ERP. But over time, as more and more vendors were investing heavily in cloud and and putting a lot of R&D dollars in it and we're actually rolling out viable cloud solutions, it's sort of, I think, reached a bit of a tipping point um, a few within the last few years. And even more recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, that's really further fueled the transition and fueled that tipping point where a lot of organizations are dealing with remote workforces that can't all be in the same location all at one time. So cloud solutions are much more viable or important to them. So... I don't know that I necessarily knew when or how or if cloud adoption would happen, but being independent and technology agnostic, we've just always questioned and challenged the notion that everyone needs to be in the cloud or that cloud is a perfect solution. So um, it's more a matter of just making sure that clients understand the pros and cons of of cloud. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Brian?
4: Yeah. I was also in the independent space at the the emergence of the cloud and Anytime there's new technology advancing, there's there's really two camps. Some are all excited what's coming. You know the those that jump on the the bandwagons, and then there's always those that lag behind and are pessimistic and don't trust that anything's ever going to take off. So you know, our, in the independent angle, we don't we don't want to lean too far in either direction. We want to lead our you know our clients to the right direction. So I think we were proceeding with caution and you know keeping an open mind. But certainly, I, I don't think I wouldn't say we foresaw what's you know what's come now and the you know the called a almost full immersion of the cloud
3: hmm. Yeah, it's great to see how much technology can evolve in such a short amount of time, too. And now, although it feels like we have arrived in the kind of cloud era, if you would, um, it's without a doubt that these technologies will only continue to evolve and improve over time. But looking at where we are today, there are definitely some software solutions that are more mature in their cloud capabilities than others. So when a company is considering opting into a cloud ERP solution, what are some key factors that will help someone identify the level of maturity that the software has acquired in their migration from on-premise to the cloud? Who wants to go first? <laughs> Anybody?
1: I can take a first pass at it here. Uh, you know, I think the, the first thing to look at is, is how long has the solution actually been in the cloud? So for example, when you look at, if you compare a a product like uh, Oracle's NetSuite, um, that's a product that's been around for over 20 years and it's always been in the cloud. So any R&D dollars and investments they've made in that sort of functionality has been in the cloud. So you don't really have the issue of is the cloud technology mature or not because they've just always been in the cloud. And the same is true for Salesforce on the CRM side and uh, Plex is another one uh, that's more of a manufacturing shop floor automation supply chain management type of um, ERP system. But beyond that, you know, if you if you're looking at systems that didn't originate in the cloud, which quite frankly is most systems did not start in the cloud. They started off as on-premise type solutions. You know, it's helpful to look at how long have they been moving to the cloud? When did they start the journey? When did they start migrating? But probably even more importantly, it's important just to look at your Business requirements and really understand what is it you need and want from the system, and really dive into those potential systems to make sure you really understand what you're getting in that cloud solution. Um, A lot of times, companies or vendors will try to sell you on their roadmap or forthcoming capabilities or forthcoming rollouts that are going to include certain functions that they don't have now, and you want to be real careful with that because there's no guarantees that that functionality will ever come. And the other thing you want to really dive into and fully understand and and kind of smoke out is a lot of vendors out there have their flagship cloud solution, but because it's not complete yet, they also have other systems that they're still using from their legacy environments that are on-prem that they're using to bolt on to that cloud solution to kind of patch together, you know, a cloud core, but then there's on-premise systems handling some of the other capabilities. So you really want to understand when a vendor Shows you something or is proposing a solution to you. Really understanding what really is in the cloud versus something that's going to be a legacy product that I'm just just going to have to upgrade later on.
4: Mm. Yeah, the, there's a misconception or misunderstanding sometimes on on level of complexity across different systems. If you look at some of the the bigger systems, taking SAP S four Hana, you know, trying to move from their ECC uh, roadmap, uh, or look at Oracle ERP Cloud, these are monstrous systems that are are navigating in time to the cloud. But there's a whole lot sitting in legacy, uh, which makes it a longer, more difficult transit, transition to the cloud. There's a reason that the original cloud solutions and the majority of things like CRM and, um, you know, some accounting packages are in the cloud, is that because they're they're not as complex. They're easier to rebuild into a cloud environment. So when you're looking at the complexity that you need and the The depth of what's actually in an ERP system, uh, that should be a big part. What Eric mentioned, a big part of your evaluation is what do they truly have available in the cloud and how are they going to fill in the gaps for any other areas?
3: Mm, Okay, interesting. Now, would you say that in some cases, companies could be better off sticking with on-premise software uh, solutions instead? And what scenarios would make the most sense to avoid the cloud and stick to the legacy solutions instead?
4: Yeah, what I think the the easy answer to that, and I'm curious to what Eric has to say, is if you're already on premise and you haven't defined a clear need to go to cloud, there might be no reason to do so. Uh, if you've got the infrastructure set to manage your own systems, you've got uh, the in-house capabilities, and you've got uh, a need for a, you know a robust system, and you've got the structure for it, you know that might be a reason to to keep it in-house because that transition to the cloud there's it's a it's a different mindset it's a you know restructuring you've got to not only change the the way you manage things but the way you handle your systems the way they're supported uh and a, a whole number of steps to take
1: yeah i agree with that and i think the thing i'd add is that you know we you don't really know there is no one size fits all answer i mean we don't really know Uh, for any given company we first work with, we don't know right away whether or not cloud is going to be the right solution for them or not until we better understand their business needs and requirements. And you also have to look at things like, like Brian talked a little bit about cost and that sort of thing, but you also have to look at risk and um, what the risk tolerance is for, for your organization, your willingness to change as an organization. That's another thing that uh, people often underestimate is that, if you have a culture of you know highly tenured employees and you have some really old legacy systems that have been around forever and they've worked fairly well it's just going to be hard harder to transition away from that even though the technology is arguably better and it's going to be more sophisticated and longer term might be a great fit it's still going to be a, a big jump for a lot of organizations so i think it's really important to to recognize that that risk that um, there that, that there are risks and fully vet that out and understand kind of what are the pros and cons of staying on premise versus going to the cloud. And and I guess the other thing I'd say is, you know, even though the tipping point is clearly upon us right now, and there's still more companies using on premise systems, but more and more of them are adopting or changing to uh, cloud systems. And maybe in five years from now, we won't even be having a discussion anymore about on premise. I don't know, but I guess the, the word of caution is that, you know, I've seen, a lot of these trends and pendulum swing back and forth and trends come and go and who knows, especially the way the 2020s are shaping up so far, who knows what's gonna uh, happen in the world of technology and is there something better that comes along? Are we overemphasizing cloud? Could there be some big security breach in the future that would cause companies to wanna scale back and go more on premise? I have no idea. So those are just the kind of things, I guess we don't wanna get too caught up into what we think the future is gonna be and everyone's doing something that involves the cloud, so therefore we should, it's really just more important that we, as an organization, look at what's, what's best for us
3: yeah absolutely no one size fits all kind of by the sounds of it too and eric you put out a video about the uh, dark side of cloud erp that i want to touch on and in that video you discussed different parties that have had a special interest in pushing the erp software industry to the cloud and from investors to vendors to the media basically so can you tell us a little bit more about the impact these interests have had on the industry and what that means for companies considering cloud solutions in their software selection process.
1: Sure. So the whole premise of that, that blog post was just to sort of uncover and show how the ERP ecosystem works. And, and that's part of us being independent, you know, Brian and I and the rest of our team at third stage can navigate that maybe a little bit more um, realistically, just because we understand the biases and the things that, that happened behind the scenes, but but just to simplify what I was saying in that blog is that vendors, software vendors, especially when they're trying to launch or get a new or get traction with a new uh, cloud ERP system, they spend a ton of money, not just on R&D, but they also spend a ton of money on marketing and making sure that people want to move to the cloud. And part of how they do that is not just by trying to sell directly to organizations looking for new ERP systems, but they also um, hire industry analysts to do quadrants and reports and things that show how great their technology is and how important it is to be in the cloud um, you have consultants out there that are that are towing the same line and then you also have uh, a lot of uh, blurred lines between you know industry publications and blogs that are putting out truly independent content but a lot of that is also being sponsored by software vendors Mm-hmm. So I get, you know, we get calls all the time, wanting to, bat, with people asking to give quotes for some kind of article they're writing or report they're writing uh, in the media, mm-hmm. but it's being sponsored by a vendor and they they have a certain angle that they're trying to trying to chase down. So uh, it's it's just important to recognize that, despite the fact that analysts and vendors and media is all saying everything's great about the cloud, everyone's going to the cloud. If you're not in the cloud yet, you're dead. You read a lot of those real extreme positions out there, and you just have to recognize for what it's worth. It's, it's just a marketing machine meant to get more people to move to the cloud so they make more money. And not to say that's right or wrong for you, but it could be right or wrong for you. So you just have to figure out what the, what the best approach is. So that was really the point is just to understand those nuances of the industry and to really try to cut through it and take it all with a grain of salt because it all is very biased. And like Brian and I have been saying, it, it, it depends on what your needs are.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So interesting and it helps really peel back the layers and dig deeper into what the driving forces have been in this transition to the cloud. Now, when we come back from a quick break, we're going to dive deeper into the specifics behind the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to cloud computing.
0: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
3: I'm Sarah Dukovic speaking with Eric and Brian from Third Stage Consulting. So let's dive into the advantages and disadvantages of cloud ERP solutions. So obviously there are pros and cons that come with nearly every solution. Can you speak on the broad advantages that a cloud ERP solution can bring to an organization that they may not see if they stick with a legacy on premise software? I think
1: the, first ones that come to mind are, first of all, your your upgrades are going to be handled uh, more behind the scenes and you're going to be more likely to keep up with emerging technologies and advancements in technology um, without having to take time out of your operations to go do a more formal upgrade or re-implementation as companies used to have to do you know, in a pre-cloud environment. Um, there's also... I think for a lot of systems, not all of them, but for a lot of them, especially the systems that have been cloud-based for a long time, there's a sort of a user interface, look and feel, um, ease of use uh, type of advantage that, that a lot of these systems have. Um, there are some cost savings or benefits to potentially be had with not having to build out um, a physical and organizational IT infrastructure to support a big on-premise type of uh, deployment. So those are a few few of the cost savings, if you will, that, that come to mind.
4: Yeah, one thing I've been talking to some clients about is the the integration with what we'll call emerging technologies. Um, not that you can't do it with on-premise, but there's a, an ease of, of access and constant development and integration when you're talking cloud platforms, when you're talking about access to data, um, usability in some cases of that data, um, sharing of data, uh, opens up some risks as well. But um, you know, one thing you want to look at is where you're going as an organization. Where, where is it, it? I think the general theme here is where are the vendors per the, the earlier comment and, you know, kind to the dark side is where are vendors putting their, their efforts and money? It is in the cloud. It is on the emergence of those newer technologies. So they tend to integrate a little bit better uh, as a whole.
3: Mm, Okay, that makes sense. Now, let's reverse this. What general disadvantages would a cloud ERP solution introduce to an organization that they may not have experienced if they were to stick with an on-premise software?
1: Well, the two biggest ones that come to mind are, first of all, the relative lack of flexibility of cloud solutions. So with on-premise systems, for better or for worse, you were able to customize the software and change it to do what you, you wanted it to do. With cloud solutions, you don't have that quite that flexibility because especially in SaaS or software as a service types of cloud deployments, which is different than a, than a hybrid cloud solution where you are in a, in a hybrid cloud solution, you would have just an on-premise system, but it's installed somewhere else in the cloud, but you could still customize and do what you want with it, whereas software as a service is what they call multi-tenant where multiple companies are using that same software, your data and everything is isolated, segregated, secure, but you're using the same software and there's fairly limited changes you can make to that software because it's being used by hundreds or thousands of companies and and users. Mm -hmm. So that lack of flexibility is one that is underestimated in terms of what the risk and pain might be uh, to go along with that. And the other one that comes to mind or the other disadvantage that many in the industry don't want to talk about is the cost um you'll get sales guys that insist the cloud is going to be cheaper in the long term than on-premise and that's simply not always true in fact i would argue that um i don't have data to back this but it could be that it's it's the inverse and it's actually more expensive for for a lot of organizations i I don't know if it's majority or not but we see a lot of organizations that end up spending more with their cloud solutions because yes they maybe they got rid of some servers and staff that they didn't need to support the system longer term but now much like leasing a car you're you have this this ongoing annual subscription fee that's never going to go away so it's a lot like leasing versus buying a car you know in some ways when you when you buy a car you can do whatever you want to it you can retain it you can um you know change it you can add new rims or wheels or whatever you want to do and eventually you pay it off and you don't have a payment. You just have the ongoing maintenance. But with a lease, the uh, downside of the lease is that you can't change the car. You can't paint it. You can't change the way you got it. And that payment goes on forever, at least until you get another lease. So, you know, the, to me, the cloud is a lot like the leasing option where it, it has its advantages. It works for a lot of organizations, but there's also a, a potential downside or trade-off that companies have to make, too.
4: That's a that's a great comment. We get calls from a lot of a lot of clients who have just gotten to the contract phase, thinking, oh, sweet, we're we're going cloud, and then they realize what it's actually going to cost. They actually run the scenarios, and the you know finally the uh, CFOs get involved and say, hold on, you know what are we talking? You know year over year, uh, it, you know there there's expanded costs around integrations, things that you don't foresee. You know the 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 support costs when you're bringing in these. External parties increase. You, you're you you're offloading the potential internal cost, but it, it's not. It doesn't go away. Um, so it gets sent around, and, and you know, probably multiple parties externally out the integration parties, and that's an ongoing cost too. Um, you know, if you're tying to your your web portals and all that, it just it tends to accelerate beyond what people initially think when they get that. You know, if you if you're going online looking at what Netsuite or Microsoft Dynamics it costs as a the SaaS platform, you know, be a little bit cautious of that because that's just the very base cost and and doesn't really look at reality.
3: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that's actually really relatable to what I'm even like going through right now with like my own online software research for certain things. I'm like, oh, I see. So over time, this will be like actually more. (laughs) And even though it might have some like benefits, but at the same time, they are almost like the same thing. So always really important to do some research. And based on everything you've touched on, it seems like the answer to whether one should pursue a cloud-based ERP solution or an on-premise solution is truly just unique to the organization and their specific needs. And when a company is just starting out on their digital transformation, should they include both cloud and on-premise software solutions to their shortlist? Or are there things that they can do to determine whether they should go one way or the other before they start meeting with vendors?
1: well it's becoming more and more common over time that it's be, it, that it's getting harder to even find uh, on-premise solutions that are still out there and they they do exist there there are systems that you can get that are on-premise in fact some some vendors have both you know they offer up cloud offerings but they also offer an on premise deployment still but i think over time that's the, you know the, the scales tipping towards more cloud because ultimately what vendors want is they want to have one cloud solution to be able to support so they can dump all their R&D dollars in that one solution and not have to worry about managing multiple systems uh, for the most part. Some some vendors, there's, there's exceptions because they have distinctly different product lines like Oracle, for example, owns NetSuite and they also own uh, Oracle ERP cloud. I don't foresee them merging those two systems together, but those are so big and they've got such big install bases they can kind of survive and coexist uh, together. So, I think the, the question is becomes, uh, you know, do you want to look at vendors that have the option for either cloud or on-premise? So in other words, if you're not sold on cloud and you think you might want on-premise, then the question might become, well, maybe I just focus my short list on those vendors that give me the option to do one or the other. Um, it's going to be hard to find many vendors, if any, well-known vendors that are strictly focused on on on-premise and don't have a cloud solution just because that's, like I said, where the industry is going. So I think that's probably the the best way to handle it. But even in those cases where you're looking at vendors that have either uh, deployment option available, you just have to think about long-term viability and is that, if I go with an on-premise option, is that really going to be around in five or 10 years? Is the vendor going to cut that off and eventually say, I have to move to the cloud anyway and so should I just go to the cloud now? Those are the types of questions that, and discussions that we get into oftentimes with our clients.
4: Yeah, What we're seeing more actually I, in recent discussions is those those organizations that have on-premise and they're, they're, they're wondering, is it time to move to cloud? And, and really what the decision is coming around is, is it worth sticking with a solution that works and looking at building sort of a best of breed to fill in missing functionality? And those best of breed solutions by the way, are, are pretty much always cloud, not all, but you know, generally cloud versus let's upgrade everything and, and get to the cloud. Now I think that's a more common scenario that we're, that we're looking at And when is the time right to rip and replace um, the, the general thoughts around that are to, are to run a business case um, just to go to cloud because everyone's saying you have to, or cause your vendor says you have to is not a good reason. Um, but if you're starting to see pains in the business, if it's looking as time to replace your ERP, if it's looking like you need, you know, cloud advantages for some reason, then would be the the time to start looking at and make sure that it's cost justified to make that jump.
3: Yeah. Awesome. This is all super informative. You guys, thank you so much for sharing these insights. Now, if, um, listeners want to learn more, what are some resources that you might suggest for them?
1: Well, in addition to Subscribing to this podcast, I I would also suggest going to uh, the third stage website. That's the company that Brian and I work for. And uh, it's an independent, we're an independent consulting firm, as you mentioned at the intro. And we have a lot of independent technology agnostic resources out there, blogs and white papers and videos and things of that nature. So if you go to thirdstage-consulting.com, that's a great resource where Brian and I are posting uh, constant blogs and videos and that sort of thing, as well as other uh, people from our team.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric and Brian. We're about out of time, but again, thank you so much for being here today and just sharing all these insights with us.
1: All right. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Brian, for being on the show. That Good conversation. It was good to uh, sort of replay that interview for for our audience here and, and learn a little bit more about what some of the, the pros and cons are. And again, the whole idea here is that we're not suggesting that cloud is good or bad, but just like any analysis or discussion we tend to have on this show or the third stage that we have as an organization we always want to recognize what the risks are and any any hot new trend or any new direction that the industry might be headed may be a net improvement overall but even if that's the case you still usually are trading one set of risk for another so in this case uh, hopefully we've we've given you some some things to think about and just be aware of because i think one of the biggest challenges with with cloud deployments or any sort of technology transformation is If you go in with unrealistic expectations or a bunch of blind spots not knowing what to expect, that creates a bunch of problems later on because you don't have a realistic plan or budget or risk mitigation framework. And so hopefully that's helped to uncover that. So we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back and we're gonna bring on uh, our next guest, which I'm excited about, which is Stuart Robb. And uh, we'll do that right after the break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back.
2: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
1: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Kyler Tetham. You can find us every Wednesday on YouTube, Pandora, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts or, or watch podcasts, you can you can find us. Uh, we go live and premiere every Wednesday morning, uh, U.S. time. And I'm excited for our next guest. I'm always excited for our next guest. I've had him a few times on here. We, Kyler, you and I have worked with with uh, him on a number of events over the years. And uh, he, he, I would consider I would consider Stuart uh, not only the head of our UK office and our European uh, office and our European client base all. Are, are sort of serviced by he, he and his team in the UK. But he's also a very entertaining character. Would you, would you agree with that? It's, he's fun to talk I to. I would
2: absolutely agree with that. Um, no offense, but he is my favorite third stage stakeholder to watch to present because you never quite know what you're going to get. So um, he's always, you know, brings the fun, I would say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He, he does. And he has a great sense of humor and he's extremely smart. I mean, he's, he's uh, you know, one of the, you know, everyone on our team is smart, but he's someone that you know he's one of those few people where you feel like, wow, you know, I could be learning from you, you you know, even, even more so than I already am. And uh, there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of good advice he has just from being in the space for so long. And he's uh, worked for some of the big consulting firms as well as obviously now a third stage and other smaller firms in his in his years or decades in the in the industry. So uh, yeah, it's good. Good conversation. We had, so we had this Q&A um, that Stuart and I facilitated on a live stream a few days ago, and we will do these stand-up sort of pop-up Q&As. Uh, we just started it in this this instance just to um, get a live audience and to get, you know, some more interaction and engagement and questions from the audience. So we cover a lot of ground in this interview. It, it started off as more of a general transformation, best practice discussion, but it, there's a lot of different, you know, side ramps we took uh, in that discussion along the way.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, such an, an interesting opportunity to be able to um, answer questions live. And I know Stuart did a lot at our Digital Stratosphere Conference. Um, he did a, a presentation on new frontiers in technology where we talked a lot about AI and machine learning and how that kind of integrates into um, the next step. So definitely check that out. I learned a lot. Um, you can go to our website and watch the day one of his presentation, so highly recommend that. But to kind of set the scene, Eric, I, I wonder if I might just ask you, why did you feel like you needed a specific presence for third stage or um, a kind of an influencer in the European region? We also, just for our listeners, we have another um, VP in our Asia Pacific region as well. Um, but I wonder if you, you might talk a little bit about that structure and that glo- global footprint that Thursday has to kind of um, precurse this conversation.
1: Sure. Yeah, there was a couple of reasons. One is that first and foremost is that our client base was sort of demanding it or, or there was a need for it that we recognize in the market. Um, it started really with our North American clients that had Euro- a European presence and presence in other parts of the world. But as we grew as a company, this is our, you know, we've been in business now for just over three years, or we just celebrated our, th- our three year anniversary. But after we had been in business for probably about a year, we, we were finding that we were getting a ton of demand from outside North America. So people, per- particularly in Europe, as well as Asia Pacific, were reaching out asking if we could help. And so we just decided, um, you know, given my relationship with Stuart, that, you know, it might make sense to open an office in, the region to help service the North American clients that needed help with their European sub- subsidiaries or their U- European-based companies that wanted, you know, sort of local support there. So that was really the, the impetus for opening that first international office. And then when we had the opportunity to open the office in Australia to handle Asia Pacific, it was the same kind of thing. We were just seeing a lot of demand for uh, services in that region. And, uh, you know, they they wanted to They wanted to hire someone who is not one of the big five, you know, one of the big, large consulting firms, but they needed someone who was big enough, had a a global enough of a presence to be able to service their, you know, diverse, diverse needs. So it's really a way to, you know, accomplish that greater vision of of being a good alternative, a good independent technology agnostic alternative to, you know, the Deloitte and the Accentures and the, the big system integrators of the world.
2: Absolutely, well, you can't get more authentic than Stuart Rob. I would guarantee that for sure <laughs> yeah
1: absolutely or you know people always say that you know they they appreciate how honest I am and how I'll just say it how, how I think it is i am I'm yeah that's nothing compared to what Stuart does Stuart Stewart almost has no filter for better or for worse, you know he almost has no filter. he'll tell you exactly what he thinks and what the risks and pros and cons are and uh he, he definitely holds no no punches for sure.
2: Yeah, and can you give us kind of a, a high level of, of, of some European projects he's worked on or, you know, some, um, some kind of a different footprint of, of where all of his clients are throughout Europe, just so we kind of understand, is it just in the UK or is it truly, you know, all of Europe?
4: Yeah, that's
1: a, that's a great question. We actually have a, a, one, of, one of our clients in Europe is a, is a very large multinational food manufacturing company based out of France. And they have operations throughout Europe as well as North America and other parts of the world. Um, that was one of the first clients that we sort of uh, went through our process with or one of our service offerings with. Uh, we also have uh, right now, we're also working with a large um, healthcare care organization that is sort of dual headquarters in, in the U.S. as well as in the uh, U.K. Um, they have operations in um in uh, ireland and other parts of of europe as well so that's another client we also have a number of clients throughout europe that are part of uh, private equity groups so private equity owned organizations um, that is an area that he is very good at or you know he and his team are very good at servicing those private equity owned companies and a lot of the thought leadership that stewart puts out is related to the to private equity mergers and acquisitions and that sort of thing so yeah, there's been a lot of different uh, companies, ranging from you know really high growth mid market companies to you know big multinational uh, global organizations. So it's been a good mix.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, Stewart is doing a private equity boot camp actually coming up later this month on the twenty first. So if you're on Crowdcast, definitely head over to our profile and and you can register for that. Um, it is a free event. So. Um, definitely a, a great thing to check out but w- with that um, i'll I'll definitely pass it over to you and Stuart to kind of get into that deeper dive into that Q a
1: yep that sounds good well let's let's do that let's cut it over to the interview that uh, I had with Stuart recently um, we'll we'll take a uh, listen here my name is eric Kimberling I am here with Stuart Rob Stuart thanks for being here today
0: uh, it's good to be with you Eric
1: so uh, maybe just real quickly uh, we're gonna dive into some questions here in a second about, I wanna talk about transformation best practices in general. So this is meant to be a sort of a 20,000 foot strategic view of of transformation, digital transformation. It's gonna be, it might be a little bit difficult to distill 25 plus years of your experience into you know some of these best practices and lessons that you have, but we'll, we'll take a, a stab here at it. And, uh, but before we do that, maybe just give us a quick introduction. What, you know, where did you come from? how did you grow up in this space?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, well, I've been, uh, I started in 1984, so I think that well over 30 years, maybe even getting up towards 35. Um, and so I started an IBM mainframe, which is what I call proper computing. Um, and um, it wasn't until about uh, uh, 1997, 98, um, where I really started getting involved in ERP um, and CRM. Uh, that was with Addison Consulting, as was um, before they... They turn themselves into Accenture Um, and I did a few years stints in various consulting firms. I went on to Ernst & Young um, uh, as a a executive consultant in ERP um, and then on to Capgemini in Australia uh, where I was um, leading their transformation consulting practice. So um, I've been doing ERP since about 97, 98, so I guess that's about 25 years. What's interesting as well is that, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of the tier one firms um, and um, the, the the methodologies that they use are actually quite similar that, you know, they come in and they will all say they've got these great methodologies, but actually when you cut it right down, um, you find that a lot of these methodologies are actually quite common and they're really common sense as well.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanna to get to that here in, in a few minutes and talking about some of, the, uh, some of the trends we're seeing with system integrators in general, but but maybe just to start, just to give us a sort of a, a starting point fly overview of the the digital transformation space. What are some of the big trends you're seeing in the space here, um, especially in more recent years? What I know a lot has changed in 25 years. You and I started around the same time in, in this industry, um, yeah. but, but just in more recent years, what are some of the biggest summary of trends that you're seeing?
0: Um, uh, certainly, uh, I mean, obviously, COVID has been an interesting time. It's almost put a pause and a break on, um, uh, did, you know, the, the 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 essence of digital transformation. I mean, um, it, it's what I call a cyclic business. So um, every firm um, will go through a transformation or a um, digital a, a refresh, uh, 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 usually upon a ten or fifteen-year cycle. Um, now the ones that don't the ones that have 30 or 40 year old systems tend to be the outliers so you'll get a system that you know is sap um ecc5 or maybe it's still r3 and the company will have decided that it is time that it needs to be refreshed the technology just can't support what the business needs to do it can't support that level of automation and so it'll be time for a change and so what you see is that there's almost, you know, you, the the same names come up over and over again. So a, a great example of that is HP, um, who did a massive SAP project in 2003, 2004. Um, had some fairly major problems with that, but managed to get it get it in in the end. Um, and then they did it again in 2017 as they started to split HP up, and again they had some problems. Um, so, you, again, you see these kind of companies, they come up on a recurring basis. Now, what happened in COVID was that that all slowed down. Um, so the number of companies surfacing say we're going to make this big investment in a technology refresh. You know, the, the, those big projects, um, we saw a, a, a slowdown in them. But actually now it's starting to come back um, and we're starting to see some larger companies again saying, you know, it's time to it's time to update. It's time to refresh. It's time to improve if you think about it that's common sense because over the course of 10 or 15 years your processes are going to stagnate people are going to become institutionalized bad ways of working are going to become embedded and data is going to get less and less clean so having the proverbial 15 year spring clean on your on your technology and making use of best practice is is a pretty you know sensible thing to do right now, what about
1: technology trends for these companies that are going through the cycle every 10, 15 years? Um, you know, a lot changes technologically in that amount of time yeah. in more recent years and with our current clients, uh, both in the UK office where you're based in North America and other parts of the world that we we have a client base. Uh, what are some of the the big, you know, the more recent technological trends that people should be aware of as they enter their digital transformations?
0: Um, uh, it- i think um i mean obviously we're seeing um a a big rise in the use of chatbots on websites um you know you can always argue whether these are really um you know modern technology because a chatbot is basically just a database of questions that it's managed to accumulate where it happens to have got the right answer and so uh, that goes into the into the database um but certainly um, language um, you know, neural networks for um uh natural language processing um helps those chatbots make intelligent sense of questions that you ask. Um, so that's a you know a, a quite a modern trend. Um we're seeing stuff in predictive analytics as well. So airlines are starting to use um predictive analytics to to preempt um uh maintenance uh, on on aircraft. Uh, particularly engines. So Rolls-Royce are, are, are making big strides going from pre- uh, preventative maintenance to predictive maintenance. Um, uh, and of course, then in the in the ERP space, um, you know, it, certainly in AP, OCR has been around donkeys years, uh, but it's really only in the last few years that you can really make it work and and, and actually use OCR to, to to do three-way matching of invoices. And then an accounts receivable, again, predictive analytics to say who's likely to be a bad payer. And what can you do to prevent that? Those technologies are now surfacing um, and starting to get into clients, uh, client footprints.
1: Right. Yep. And then when you when you look at predictive analytics and uh, artificial intelligence, it made me think of uh, robotic process automation. That's another um, technology that seems to be being baked into enterprise technology providers like, you know, SAP and Oracle and those guys. How is that how have you seen some of these some of the things you just mentioned as well as ai or robotics um how is that in reality being integrated into modern enterprise technology is, is it sort of a pipe dream that will happen someday or or do you see our clients actually using that technology now
0: um i mean there are instances of rpa i mean rpa is just a super word for screen scraping which we used to use in the 90s so it's not as Fantastically, super duper, as I think everybody might um, suppose it is. It's just a fancy word for um, being it able to, be. yes, manipulate an old system. Um, you know, using a tool that can, you know, um, figure figure out what that system is and and, and process a transaction. Um, the interesting thing about IPAs is it's not nearly as 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 ubiquitous actually as as some of the AI systems that we've talked about. So, I mean, a lot of organisations are using OCR technology for invoices or using chatbots, as I mentioned, and and other stuff. Um, But really, RPA, to some extent, is a problem that's still look is a solution that's still looking for a problem to solve. And when I talk to clients, they're not really saying, I think what we need is an an RPA tool to uplift our capability, Um, on this ERP, they still say, I need to get rid of this ERP. I need a complete refresh. I need to sort the data out. I need to get the processes right. And they'll still think of the 100 million plus dollar ERP project rather than the, you know, 10 million or 5 million RPA project.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's a a common dynamic that seems to be there where you you have companies that just, you know, two things. They want to, first of all, just replace their old system because they have to in many cases. But also, you know, so many organizations don't necessarily need or want to swing for the fences to go for the really big emerging technologies. They just want to make some incremental improvements to
0: to get there. And now,
1: the, now the question is, can you do that in a way that's not overly cost prohibitive and still gives you an
0: ROI? Uh, that's the big, the well, big it's, it's interesting. One of our clients, that's a multinational clients, US um, and UK uh, based. Um, they brought us in about three years ago to do a finance transformation and the whole essence of their finance transformation, was to replace their ERP, an old version of Epicor. get rid of it, put a new one in, and everything in our garden would be rosy. And the problem was that actually when we started analysing um, what pain points they were having, and where all their issues were, um, almost none of them were related to a functional deficit in their ERP. Nearly all of them were either upstream data problems, um, or poor process. Uh, and so you know the the, the whole tenant of their transformation was founded on the fact that this new ERP was going to solve all their problems. But actually there was a huge landscape of change that they could do before they even worried about their technology. And in fact, you know the the smart play there was to clean the data landscape was to clean, you know to improve the process landscape, was to upskill the people and then do the technology last. And in fact, that's what they've done. Um, and even to the extent that they haven't actually bothered replacing the core ERP, because there's no business benefit that comes from a system that adds up and takes away numbers and produces a set of financial accounts. So that's you know very, very uninteresting. Um, and so what they've really spent their effort is in the boundary systems. Um, and as I said, you know they've used uh, products like high radius to massively improve their accounts receivable and their sales outstanding. Um, They're using uh, Proactis to deliver uh, improvements in accounts payable, so vendor um, self-service and things like that. Um, And so they're really targeting their transformation and their technology uplift on those places that are really going to give them high benefit. and not every company will do that. Some will just say, let's clear it out, get rid of the whole lot, start again. But this company's really taken the transformation as what it probably ought to be, which is a pure business transformation that thinks about the whole ecosystem you know, pro- people, process, technology, data, information security, that whole thing. And they're saying, how do we optimize across all of those dimensions, not how do we replace some technology and hope we get a bit of spin-off benefit in terms of improved processes and self-service reporting? Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so maybe shifting gears a little bit, and you know, we've we've talked about emerging technologies and sort of where enterprise technology is headed and that sort of utopia of uh, you know, great, great new technologies in some cases, in other cases, it's just the same technology with better names <laughs> than we, yeah. we've seen in the past, which yeah. uh, there's, there's a lot of repackaging of the same stuff that it that tends to happen in this space. Yeah. Yeah. But in general, maybe moving away from those trends a little bit and just talking more specifically about the actual transformations themselves, what are, how would you summarize? And I know this is a very tough question to summarize, but how would you summarize some of the most important keys to digital transformations if, if someone were just starting out or, um, is, is in the midst of a, a transformation right now, thinking about a transformation. What are some of those things they need to be aware of? Um, you know, just make sure they focus on these, you know, these three or five things or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, how long have you got? Because we could speak about that probably for the next 48 hours, this could become the world's longest podcast. Um, <laughs> it's funny That's you what said what? about uh, repackaging. I mean, I always loved the, thought, the idea that we've got this real good cloud computing, you know, inverted commas. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they call it application service provider. And, you know, 15 years ago, it was distributed computing and then 30 years ago, it was mainframes. And so the same terminology cha- the terminology changes, but the same core basic techniques are the same. You know, in a mainframe, I had all my applications running in a machine at the center and I had um, a screen access, um, you know, sat in front of me accessing a mainframe. Well now I'm on the internet and I'm using a screen access in the internet and I'm logging onto applications that hosted a data center. So everything that comes around is never new. It's just the same thing repackaged <laughs> with slightly better graphics in my view, but there you go. Um so uh important keys to digital transformation is success. Um I think the I think the answer to that is if you're starting it, it's easier to start it right and keep going than it is to start it wrong and then try and fix it that's the first thing so any anything that you do when you are launching a transformation you really need to have either really good advisors or really good uh research you know and see what the common failings are um i would say um your the 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 best thing the best things that you can do at the beginning are be very clear about what your vision is for your transformation and what it encompasses so what is the scope and what is the outcome going to be very clear crisp answer to what the outcome of the transformation um, is going to look like the second thing is that a lot of people leap straight from there to going well, how do I replace my ARP? Or well, how do I replace my HCM platform? Or how do I replace my CRM? And actually, um, it's, much more, um, uh, it's much more effective to break your business problem down and to start looking at areas where you can improve from a, um, a business perspective and then create a series of projects or initiatives and prioritize those as things you should go and do now it might be that some of those are technology but it might be that some of those have got nothing to do with technology they've got you know their operational changes and changes in the org or training or whatever they are um, but too many organizations take you know take the big step going straight from you know we want to we want to improve our business and we want to improve our cost to serve and we want to you know uh, 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 increase our automation in our business and all of a sudden the next thing they're doing is talking to Um, You know Deloitte or Accenture or somebody saying how do we how do we how do we do this and they miss out all that Target operating model and value proposition and initiative prioritization and all the other stuff that they should do first Um, And you know clients have a tendency to do that they get into the RFP and then when they start to talk to the SI The SI will say to them, Well, hang on a minute, have you done this, 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 and this and this? And they'll go, Well, no. And so then they'll have to do a huge, big reverse gear to try to get back to the point at which, you know, they should have come out of that vision stage, really being clear. And of course, they've gone through this huge procurement, they've decided on Oracle or they've decided on Salesforce or they've decided on this technology. And now the SI is saying, Well, what are you going to do with it? And it's all very yeah, you know, well, here's our 7000 requirements. No, 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 we don't mean that. Well, what, what, what's going to be better? What, what's the outcome? And, you know, so there's <laughs> there's there's ways of doing that, that. And and so if you can get that right, that's going to really, really help you. So do the steps in the right order. The second okay. thing is. Um, Make sure that you have a partner or an advisor or a contractor. I don't really care who it is, but who really, really knows how to do this stuff and really solid um, because most organizations think they can do this. But even when you've been part of a project team that has done the ERPs or transformations before, there's a very, very different skill set to running one of these than there is to being part of it um and we find organizations that get lost quite early in the process um because you know they've they've seen the the swan or the duck gliding along the top of the water but they haven't seen what paddling goes on underneath to make that a smooth process um and so you know there are actually not a huge pool of people in the world who really know how to do these transformations effectively and quite a lot of them are soaked up by the tier one consulting firms anyway Um, so you know you really have to select your support um, if you want to be effective and i think too many organizations start realize they don't have the knowledge but get too far down the road um, and then again, have to do a lot of reverse gearing. So those are, you asked for five, I would say, if I was going to give you the top two, those would probably be the absolute flashing neon signs.
1: Yeah. And those are good ones that actually, if you do those couple things, right, that actually leads to a bunch of other things that will probably fall into place more likely than if you, you yeah. hadn't focused on these two things. Uh, yeah. one thing that you, you mentioned that I just want to build on a little bit is the, the first point you made around the, uh planning and just making sure you have a, a clear vision of what you want out of the project and how you're going to get there. Uh, it reminds me of an interview we did on this podcast for, uh, with James Hayward. Yeah. I know you, you know very well. He's the CFO yeah. of a client uh, of ours in the UK that you've worked yeah. very closely with. And one of the comments he made in that interview, you know, we were, we were talking about a project that I believe was a, I can't remember if it was either 12 or 18 months. It was a it was a round number like
0: that. Yes, yeah, 12,
1: uh, 12 yeah. months. 12 and months. And I was asking him, he was talking about the importance of planning. And I asked him, how much of that 12 months did you spend on planning versus the actual execution of the transformation?
0: Yeah, it was and he said,
1: it was, yeah, it was it was well over half. I mean, he was saying it was well over half that time was spent planning, preparing, getting the yeah, and, and,
0: and planning never stops. Right. Um, you know, like the business case never stops, because if you're going to create a plan, then as you move through the plan, things are going to change. More things are going to manifest themselves. You're going to get knocked off course, um, you know, by the um, prevailing winds, and so you have to continually keep on top of the plan and make sure that you're always sailing towards the, you know, towards Southampton and not going to end up in the Gibraltar or some, you know, place like or southern Spain or something. Um, so, so um, you know, I think there's a temptation to have a plan. think that that is the plan and hold on to that plan even when it's absolutely patently self-evident that the plan is dead and it's not going to get delivered and so being more adaptive and more agile and say okay well this has happened we now know this you know what does that do to us and how do we steer back towards where we were aiming for it's just a good discipline and again it's one that organizations i don't think do terribly well and the second aspect on planning as well is um around um Planning at the right level. Um, so, again, I go into a, too many organizations, the same organizations that tend to deliver up 7,000 requirements for an ERP, of which 6,900 are the same as every other organization, also tend to over plan. So, what they will do is that rather than allowing the people that they hold accountable to deliver parts of the project and to run their own plan. They will create these super complex master plans. The, the worst one I ever saw was twenty five thousand lines in a Microsoft Project plan using Enterprise Project, and it was useless. I mean, nobody bought into it. Nobody really understood it. When something changed over here, it would change that over there. Nobody understood how or why, um, and it took months to build this thing, and it was an absolute monster. Um, and within I would say probably about three months, the thing was absolutely useless. No, you know, completely out of date. Nobody was keeping up to date. And so we, again, advocate very strongly. You have a mid-level plan that as a program manager, you can visualize and see what's going on without having to get right into the weeds. So we think you can hold about 150 odd work packages in your head you know, in a visualization at any one time and react to those. So plan to try to get to a point at which your granularity is about 150 active activities. Yeah. Because if you're trying to manage 4,000 active activities, you're just going to fail.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that, 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 um, balance between focus and, uh, you know, having having the amount of focus you need, but at the same time addressing the you know the complete business problem or the business needs, and knowing that you're not going to boil the ocean overnight, you're not going to solve the world's problems overnight. That's a, a key balancing uh, challenge that a lot of organizations seem to have.
0: I think as well, you know, to be honest, yeah. As a program manager, you're one person, and you're carrying the execution and the delivery, you know, on your shoulders. Um, and if you're if you're going to try and micromanage every work stream and every work package, you're gonna fail. You're aligning yourself up to fail before you start. So actually, um the, the 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 way to manage a program, particularly if it's a large transformation, is to not do that. It's to try and lead. Yeah. So as long as your feedback loop is, are you on your plan, Mr. Accountable Person? yes or no, and if the answer's no, what is that issue or risk that's impacting you and what can we do about it, is a much better conversation to have than to be saying online number 6,922, you were supposed to deliver it by this date, but you actually delivered it by that day. is a value-free conversation. And so again, I find um, particularly those who are newer into ELP program management, they tend to take their project management hat and try and expand it up rather than changing their style and becoming much more of the leader and much more um, support and direction rather than task management and micromanagement.
1: Right. Yeah. And it, and it seems like too, you know, one of the other phenomena that we see with with a lot of uh, clients in that in the spirit of talking about that planning and kind of focusing in on this planning uh, thread that we're on right now, is when a client first decides what their new technology is going to be, and they've made a decision that yes, we're going to implement whatever the solution is. Uh, there's a certain amount of momentum you have in the project. People are excited. Usually, that's about as good as momentum gets. Unfortunately, in the whole project is when you make that decision that yes, we're going to do it. We got approval. And now we're moving forward. It's yeah. all I hate to say. It's all downhill from there. But it that's. Yeah. That's the peak of uh, of excitement, and then you add to the fact that your vendor and your system integrator is typically pressuring you to say, "Hey, you're excited. We're all excited. Let's get going," and then they throw a bunch of resources at it, and suddenly, you know, you wake up the next day, you know, you've got dozens of consultants potentially there on the meter, ready to help you out, but you're not ready. You know, you haven't you haven't gotten your own ducks in a row and done the planning. You haven't defined what you want to be when you grow up, but yet you're paying by the hour now with those.
0: Yeah, yeah. and and that's really common. I think I wrote a blog on this a couple of years ago about um, being ready with your homework before you do the exam. Um, And it's precisely that. Um, I'm um, really quite uh, firm with clients that there are some prerequisites that they have to have in place before they let the, you're going to tell the SI their preferred vendor, and you can tell them that, you know, we're going to enter into terms with you and blah, 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 blah. But what you don't want is a, you know, dozen consultants sitting there waiting to start, and you've got no team. And the team or the team that you have got have just joined and they don't know what it's all about and they don't know what their role is. You know, you are far better putting all of the pieces of your jigsaw in place first. Uh, so that the people on the team know what they're supposed to be doing. They know what the program's all about. They know how hey, you've got to where you are uh, before you get the SI on board, and then they're ready to start having workshops and do whatever, and you're prepared. Um, and, he, you know, it, as you say, a lot of time and money, particularly in the early parts of design and wasted, um, because the SI is ready to go and the client team isn't. Um, and uh, actually, it's a big lesson is that um, it's quite common that or any SI or any, in fact, consulting firm uh, is almost always able to go faster than the client. And the reason for that is because the, the consultant or the SI's pure focus is on the program. Whereas you get matrix management, matrix resources, you get resources that come on, don't know what they're doing, you get resources that come on and then roll off again. You know, there's that churn where you don't get that continuity of knowledge. You don't necessarily get first go right with terms of skills. They don't come along with the collateral. Again, there's simple things. The number of times that I say, do not go into design and implementation before you've got your SKU model sorted out, before you've really documented your price book. Because the SI will sit there and say, can you tell me what your price book looks like and what your discounting model is? And they won't have it because nobody's looked at it for 10 years, and it's not written down. And so they will spend three weeks, four weeks, writing the SKU model or writing the price book while the SI is sitting there waiting, charging for them. And those are are easy things to, 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 to sort out without the benefit of 50,000 pound a week going out the front door to, you know, to the lights of, um, the tier one SIs,
1: Yeah. It, that's a great point. And it, and it's super easy to be lulled into thinking that we, in order for us to meet an aggressive timeline and an aggressive budget, we need to get going now. So there's a temptation to say, well, if we do what Stuart says, which is to plan and to, define our processes up front, then we're going to slow things down and we're not going to meet our timeline. But the reality is that helps you speed up. And that's something James talked quite a bit about is how how fast the project was able to go once they had that solid plan in place. So I think that's one thing that a lot of organizations miss out on.
0: Yeah, I think as the other thing as well is, um, you know, the, again, the, the SI's role in life is to generate fees and profits for the partners, right? And so the, the, the SI SO will be keen to get as many warm bodies onto the client site or charging the client billable time as they possibly can. And actually, you know, in some circumstances, 80% of those people are not going to add any value for six weeks or eight weeks or ten weeks. So you are better throttling and managing the SI so that you're getting the A team leadership, you know, experts. To structure the program properly through a mobilization and then early parts of design, and then getting people on later, um, you know, where you're getting into more detail. Um, the same is true of decision making. You know, again, um the temptation in an ERP is um to want a decision, to need a decision, therefore to make a rapid decision. Now, actually, if you built your plan around that what you'll do is almost certainly make lots of bad decisions. And what happens is that as you get into build and test, particularly when you get into UAT, all those bad decisions will come back to haunt you. So what you really need is for those key decisions, you need sufficient time to acquire a reasonable data set on which to base a decision and then a reasonable amount of time, you know, at least a day or two to reflect on it and to Coalesce your thinking before you make it. And too often you'll sit in a meeting, and i you know, over and over again, uh, we need a decision on whether we're going to use this integration or not. Um, and they'll go, you know, because it's going to take this long to build, and we're recommending de scoping it and you say, if you're any good, well, you know, what happens if we descope it? Oh, nothing, it'll be fine. And then six months later, you find you've it, and all of a sudden half your reporting suite doesn't work because you just haven't done that piece of work properly. You haven't thought it through. You've made the decision in a rush because the program is held up whilst that decision is being made. But then all it does is add time later on because you've gambled red when the colors come up black.
1: Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. And, you know, it's even worse, I think, is that, or or at least just as bad as what you just described, is the other option, which is, um, we'll just let our system integrator or the software determine for us how that yeah. a certain process is gonna look, look. And then you end up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. But I, think that, I think the other thing that's, that, 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 you know, if I wanted to characterize a key success factor in these, um, and it's something that I've always been really lucky with is surrounding yourself with good people and people that you trust to be able to take the accountability and to make decisions and to make informed decisions and to run their part of the program without you having to constantly intervene or them constantly coming to you um, you know the most successful programs that I've been on um, you know, I've often felt sometimes, actually, I don't need to be there because it's they're all just getting on with it and they're all really focused, um, you know, and I'm just sitting there doing the status meeting and, you know, orchestrating, you know, conducting the orchestra a bit, but everybody knows their instrument, everybody's playing beautifully and that's, that's fantastic. Um, and so if you can create that team, um, very, you know, your likelihood of success goes up considerably. And I think what also happens is a lot of organizations aggregate, disaggregate their accountability to the SI. Um, And unless you are closely managing the SI, um, you know, you're not gonna know what the SI is doing and you're not even necessarily going to know what assumptions or decisions they're making. Um, And so, you know, again, it's very easy to lose control. It's very easy to lose the picture on these programs. and that's why, you know, I, you know, it's funny, I was having a conversation today. I was saying, you know, I, I do tend to rehire people I've worked with before. And the reason I rehire people I've worked with before is because I know them. I they know how I think they have worked with me previously, you know, and they've clearly been successful at what they do. And so why wouldn't I rehire them? Because, you know, the, the, they've already proven themselves. Um, in in what they do. And I know that, you know, may not be the most politically correct thing that that we're supposed to say these days, you know, everyone has an equal chance. But the truth of the matter is, if you're putting people on it, and you don't know them, and you find out that they're not capable of doing the job, then you're again, you're going to waste time, you're going to waste money, you're going to waste DSI's time and money. And really, you're Our sole objective in delivering these transformations should be to maximise your chances of success. So whatever tactic or technique you have to do, whether it's, you know, tight vendor management, whether it's good recruitment, whether it's selecting the right team members from internal ring fencing people that you want, not sharing them, you know, all of that stuff, each little, you know, success attribute that you put onto a program will increase your chances of success and make you more likely to come out of it as the uh, as the hero rather than the goat, as Charlie Brown used to call it.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to pick up this conversation with a lot more audience questions and more topics we're going to cover. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Thanks for listening here today. You can find us every Wednesday. We premiere on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, we were in the middle of a interview that I had with Stuart Robb from our team talking about uh, digital transformation best practices and lessons, sort of in general. It was meant to be a strategic flyover, if you will, of some of the things to be thinking about uh, as it relates to transformation. and. We also had a number of live questions that we took from the audience during this recording. So, uh, the second half of this uh, session, we want to queue up for you and uh, we'll, we'll just cut straight to it from, from here. We had a, a question that I wanted to, uh, that came in through LinkedIn while we've been talking here yeah. that I want to cover. And this is from Krishnan uh, Kaushik. And he's asked, uh, Don't you think that the cycle of tech transformation or digital disruption is getting reduced with each passing decade? With current trend, it looks like highly competitive markets will have to go through multiple transformation efforts in consecutive years. If this happens, then how can a company manage transformation initiatives and help their employees adopt technology without any confusion? So I think uh, getting back yeah. to the human um, human side of things, along combined with the rapid pace of constant the rapid pace of constant change, so um, how do you how do you balance that? Yeah,
0: I, I think that. I, I think that's true to a certain extent. In other respects, I think it's a misnomer. And I think it's a misnomer because the technology companies will want you, will be pushing you and wanting you to recycle and refresh because they'll get more money out of you. I mean, it's quite simple. And the SIs will be love you because you're constantly refreshing. As I said before, if I take a very cold, hard look, you know, Uh, uh, an accounting package adds up and it takes away. And even if I compare an accounting package from 1980, you know, a COBOL one to one from um, 2015 or 16, they're not doing anything substantially different. Now, you might disagree with me, and I'll tell you a little story, um, which was um, I had my uh, daughter around um, at the... um, A couple of weekends ago, and um, she's about 12. um, And she's doing computer studies at school and she was raving on about all the latest tech. And I said "There's, you know, if you strip away all of the surrounding graphics and excitement, it it, we're doing the same thing that we did um, 30 years ago. And to prove it, I went on to QuickBooks and I went and I created an invoice. Uh, and um I uh, 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 they had the you know the the VAT number and the address and the uh, the and all the rest of it, the, the line item and the item code and what have you. And I created it and I was able to save the invoice and I was able to send it to the dummy company that I had set up. And there you go. It was in my QuickBooks, it was in my database. That's it. Thank you very much. And then I went over to my very old apple 2 and in basic i wrote a little program that would capture the company name the company address the vet number etc uh, etc et and it would save it to a uh, floppy disk drive as a text file and i could retrieve the text message and i could put it on the screen and there it was and it was no different to quickbooks now Okay, it wasn't as sexy and it didn't have, you know, you couldn't, you know, use drop down lists and things like that. Although I suspect if I'd been minded enough, I could have worked out a way to program drop down lists and basic. probably not be the best use of my time. But philosophically, it was doing the same thing. Um, Now, what it couldn't do was it couldn't draw nice graphs showing me what my sales per quarter were or my sales per month, and it couldn't do, you know, my percentage revenue of um you know uh, france versus uk or anything like that because that part of the technology has moved on but the core of an ERP or accounting system hasn't and actually those do not give you any business benefit at all a core accounting package whether it's sap or oracle or next suite or quickbooks or you know my little basic program that i wrote gives you no competitive advantage Okay, the stuff that does give you competitive advantages is the higher level layers. So it's the things like the sales order processing and order management stuff, and the fulfillment stuff, the manufacturing processes, and the you know materials management and potency management. It is the um, accounts receivable uh, automation and AI. And actually, you know, the, the 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 business case for replacing a core ERP is actually pretty weak. If your sole objective is to replace your accounting package with a new one, then the only reason you've really got to fall back on is technological obsolescence. I, it's so old that the vendor's not going to support it and it's going to fall apart. In order to get real benefit, it has to be the peripheral applications, the boundary layer applications. And they're going to change all the time. Um, and that is just part of the normal process of life. So that's why I say, um, in answer to the question, you know, your the, the number of companies that will replace a core ERP with all of the disruption that that comes with is never going to be every two years. I mean, Vodafone, O2, you know, um, uh, G- GlaxoSmithKline, whoever they are, whether they're on Oracle, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, whether they're on Oracle or SAP, they're not every two years going to be going well actually i've decided i don't really like sap i'm going to take it out and i'm going to put oracle in you know that doesn't happen what they're going to do is to say actually um uh, we've got this new um product or service that we're going to offer and within the core of our oracle or sap platform it doesn't do exactly what we want so we're going to buy this additional piece of technology that does do what we want you know some kind of customer experience portal whatever the thing is and they'll bolt it on the side now in 10 years time sap and oracle might offer that as part of their standard product but you know let's be honest um netsuite and microsoft dynamics still do not have any native capability to ocr an invoice you have to go and buy a separate product from the app store so you know the the idea that the core enterprise operating system, the enterprise engine needs regularly replacing, I think is 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 not correct. But I do agree that the peripheral will always change. And that is just the normal business as usual, the stuff that enterprises will go through.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, here's another question that's that's interesting. Um, actually, we got a couple here. I'm going to choose one. Uh, let me go back to this one.
0: I'll, I'll give shorter answers if, we, if, we're getting there, if we're getting a lot.
1: Yeah, there's, they're starting to roll in here. Um,
0: okay.
1: so, so the question I wanted to get to here is where is it? Bear with me. Um, can Stuart please advise on best practices to develop a business case for replacement or upgrade of an ERP system?
0: Yeah, I can. Um... Oh, that's a very long subject. We should do a podcast on this on its own, but I can give you some pointers. Um, First of all, um, building a business case bottom up is quite a lot harder than building a business case top down. Um, So um, uh, one of the first places I start with business cases is to look at what the key drivers of the business are and what data we have available um, to look at those key drivers. So let's take an example. Let's say that um, uh, we are, um, uh, we, the, 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 the goal of the program is to improve finance efficiency. So, the first place, it, which is a really easy long division, is to say, well, what's our total revenue and what's finances cost to serve as a percentage of total revenue? Now, you can look that up on averages by industry on the apqc and that will give you a benchmark so the average benchmark for all companies is about two percent so if you do your calculation and it's a very simple calculation that you can do just by looking at the annual accounts you can divide it, the, the finance costs by the um by the um uh, uh, the revenue and if you're a, Four, 3% or 4%, you know, you have got 1% to play with. And you know that because every other company can make it doing with 2%. So you'll there's got to be a reason why you're more. And that then allows you to start drilling down to the next level to say, OK, well, um, where's that cost leakage? It's usually in headcount, right? Let's be honest, that's that, that's where most companies spend, particularly in back office functions. So if you're looking at headcount, you can say, okay, well, how much is my AP costing me? So what is it if I do some division, what's my cost per invoice processed or my cost of vendor setup compared to the industry average? And again, that gives you somewhere to go that starts to give you comparators that say we are not efficient and this is how efficient we should be. And therefore that block of money is available. And so that should be the aim and target of our business case. And then you can build the the future state operating model that underpins that financial objective. Now, that's an easier way than trying to say, well, maybe we can shave a head over here and maybe we can shave another head over there. You know, that's quite a difficult. Or maybe we can shave, you know, maybe this, type, this person can spend a bit more time doing this and a bit less time doing that. That's quite a difficult way to build up a business case. And actually... Usually, it's not credible either. Usually, people will go into that micro-level detail or pull it to pieces and say this business case is rubbish. Whereas, if you're doing it from a benchmark perspective, that becomes infinitely more powerful because all you've got the answer. This is what everybody else does. We're not doing it. There you go. There's the there's the profit we're leaving on the table.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a, a couple of things you you point out that are they're super important. One is that you know, the, the need to look at benchmarks um, and look at, you know, reliable agnostic benchmarks. It's easy to go to, you know, SAP or Oracle or Microsoft and ask them, how much money am I going to save if I deploy your technology? And they're going to give you a big magic number that uh, you you probably don't want to hang your hat on, or certainly you don't want to bet your career on. And that's, that's one thing. The, The other thing too, that I think maybe just backing up even more is I think the fact that we're talking about a business case is important because a lot of times, even now, especially now, and the way the industry is going and the way so many organizations are being forced into changing their technology, they they neglect the whole business case because they say, well, I don't have a choice because SAP is making me upgrade to S4 HANA or Oracle's making me upgrade to Oracle Cloud or whatever. Um, so it, it, even if you are being forced or you feel like you have no other choice and there is nothing really to justify, you still want to have that business case, right? From a you're right? Yeah,
0: you wouldn't, go, you wouldn't go to your bank manager and say, can I have a £100,000 loan and then go and he'll go why and go, oh, well, because cars getting a bit old. I mean, you're going to need something a bit more than that, you know, to get him to shell out a hundred grand. And it's the same with a business case you need, you need some, you know, good paperwork behind it. Um, otherwise, it's just sunk money.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed now here's a question that's quite a bit different than what we've been talking about so far but i think it'll be relevant to a lot of our audience uh, particularly those that might be in consulting or interested in consulting and this uh, question is uh, hello sir can you talk about the growth of a functional consultant so cool. maybe just talk i know that's a very broad question but maybe you yeah. can hone in on just yeah. maybe as a consultant in general you know yeah. what is a what does a career path look like and may, i don't know if you want to tie it back to your career path or what you've seen uh, our own team uh, you know, uh,
0: I mean, my career path is uh, probably a little bit unusual in from consultancy um, because I didn't come in as a you know, a, a consultant into a firm uh, and start from scratch. I actually came in as an associate partner um, because I'd already run a company. I was already um, so I was subsumed into um, into Ernst & Young. Um and so uh, probably my experience isn't isn't terribly useful. but you know if you're if you're going to grow in consulting, um, you, you know the, the, there are two attributes you need. Firstly, you need to be a you need to be expert at what you do and you need to you know really be solid and confident and uh, to some extent assertive as well. To make sure that you're making a positive contribution, but that the, the clients that you're talking to can rely on you and trust you and and want to work with you. Um, the second thing that you need to do in consulting is um, if you're going to be effective, you need to be able to communicate with people, and you need to be able to build a rapport with people. So. Um, you'll you'll generate as you get more senior and as you do it longer you'll get more gravitas and you'll as you get more seniority you'll get more gravitas and you'll get more charisma in the role but that's something you have to proactively build. Now there are all sorts of uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of of, of things that, that that will help you do that. Um, uh, Barbara Minto um, on the pyramid principle around how to communicate with senior execs. You know that's 101 consulting. Um, there are some good videos actually on YouTube. I guy, one from a ex McKinsey consultant, and even I watch it because I actually think you know some of the stuff he has uh, to say um, it, it is actually quite interesting. Um, uh and then the third thing is and unfortunately this is the thing that a lot of people struggle most with is that you have to know how to understand a problem from a client and come up with a proposition that will solve that problem and then be able to sell it and a lot of people don't think that consultants are salesmen and if you are a partner in a consulting firm you are absolutely a salesman and so again, a good background in um, negotiating techniques, contracts, anything that you can do in your consulting career that can get you out of your box and supporting something that is a little bit left field. Low, so if you can get yourself onto a bid team, if you can help work with the negotiation team, you know whatever it is that builds your width of experience will make you more attractive as you move up the seniority grades. Right. That gave some so a few insights there.
1: Yeah. And, and a, a follow up question actually from a different uh, person who, so it, obviously this, this topic is of interest to a few people on the uh, recording here today, but the question is, how do you balance specialization with being useful starting out?
0: Um, you, you be useful um absolutely um you know uh if you, you, you a friend of mine's um, daughter has actually just joined um pwc as an actuary um and she was getting quite frustrated that she was being asked to make the coffee for the partner and what have you and i said no that's a good thing you're getting into the partner's office you're communicating with the partner he'll be imparting pearls of wisdom things that he happens to be doing he'll be giving you work directly rather than going through all of the layers trust me that's the best thing you could be doing and so um, you know the specialization is important but it's the well-rounded consultant that's going to go up the quickest so the more you can get involved with the more you show that you're proactive you're keen but not grasping and desperate you know you still have to be part of the team Um, but partners want somebody that they can rely on. They want, again, like the client, they want somebody that they can trust, they can give something to, they know it's going to be done, it'll be done right first time. You won't do everything right first time, you'll make a few missteps. I've made a few horrendous hours in my career, sent the whole margin spreadsheet to client once, which I thought was going to get me sacked. And as it happened, the margin wasn't in it. Um, but, I, you know, that was a kind of, the disasters that, that will befall you. But those the phones will tolerate that because if in the whole, you are a, a go to individual um, because you've that that width and depth of skills and experience. And, you know, you get on with everyone, um, you know, that's what they want. And that's how the best people and the people who go fastest up the chain are the ones that are the best networkers. Right.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's sound advice. Um, and I think that's a challenge too, with, with being a consulting, I think it's always a challenge between, um, uh, not only specialization versus being useful, which don't necessarily obviously need to be two different things, but yeah. there's also the whole balance of, of specialization versus breadth. And I think the challenge yeah. with what we do as consultants, especially in the transformation space is that you need to have some specialty, but you also have to be able to see the big picture or else you get,
0: you know, you're not, really well, as- yeah. There's another more immediate consideration, which is a mantra that I always think, which is everything that I've ever learned, I know is going to go out of date in about five or ten years. So I can program in basic, I can program in COBOL. If I had to, I can run a system on an IBM mainframe. And that skill set to me at the moment is absolutely no use whatsoever, but I can still do it. So, you know, I have reinvented myself approximately every five years um, for my entire career now as you get older it gets much harder to keep reinventing yourself technically because you you just don't have the brain capacity that you had when you were 20 to start learning about non-fungible tokens and you know bitcoin programming and python you know cryptography you know you can't do that because you get older so your your you you make a transition from knowledge and skill um Into um into slightly more esoteric, you know, client relationship management and um and, and program directorship and things like that, which rely more on your people yeah. skills and your technical skills. But nonetheless, you know, yes, absolutely, you've got to be a good all rounder, but you have to be known for something. Yeah, it's no good being a consultant. And say, well, what does he do? Oh, he just kind of he's just here. You know, that that that's no good. You've got to be known for. Yeah, you need to speak to him about. If you need something, some help on SAP or or, or whatever it is,
1: right? So, so just to wrap up then, and and maybe one last question that'll sort of pull all this together, and maybe even uh, summarize some other things we haven't gotten to. But what if you had to summarize for someone that is about to start a transformation? Either they're an executive on a on a project team, or or at an organization about to go through a transformation, or they're a project team member, or maybe they're a consultant that's about to enter the space. What sort of um, high level advice would you give to someone that's just getting ready to start out on, on the journey here?
0: Um, you should be able to give an elevator pitch on the outcome of the program, um, and you should be able to do that to anyone at any time You know, within ten floors. So you should be able to talk about the program. What its what its purpose is, what outcome, what benefit? Within about thirty to forty-five seconds. If you can't do that, um, you, 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 the, you will struggle to be able to relay the, the 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 big picture to anyone else. And so, my strong recommend you know when you are starting your mission, your vision, your strategic imperatives, all of that stuff is really really important to crystallize. And the way that I recommend doing that, as well as kind of having that elevator pitch, is to have some form of narrative, You know, some kind of day in the life of, that you can say how it's going to be different to everyone. The board, the chief executive officer, the SI, the tools vendor, the colleague who uses the system on a day-to-day basis, the colleague who uses it ad hoc once every now and again, You know, whoever it is, the client, the customer, whoever it is, have that real clarity in mind as to what it looks like because if you can communicate that effectively and everyone can understand it everyone will get behind it if you can't you you, you're finished before you start
1: right that's it's great advice and it gets back to that you know sort of vision and and clarity and planning and that seems to be the theme of what we've talked about here today is the, the importance of that so i appreciate that that feedback well Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for being on the show here today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate everyone uh, listening in here and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you, seeing you on the podcast again very soon. And if we, if you want to reach out to Stuart or any of our uh, team in the UK, uh, especially if you're a European based company, or if you have European resources that want to reach out, we'll include your contact information, but they can also connect with you on LinkedIn and uh, other channels, I assume.
0: Yeah, um, well, actually, I hate Facebook with a passion you can only just about imagine. So don't don't look for me there. <laughs> but I am I'm a link. Started then. And, uh, and obviously, um, uh, you can email me at stuart.rob at thirdstage uh, dash consulting. com.
1: Yep, and we'll include a, we'll include a link to your, your email address below. And uh, you can also reach out to me as well and uh, look forward to seeing you all soon. Thanks again, Stuart, for being here.
0: Okay, great. Thanks a lot yeah. now.
1: Everyone have a great day. Take care. Okay, well, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed that session here today. I uh, hope you found that uh, informative as far as the the q and a with with Stuart and I on uh, transformation best practices. That really wraps up this episode of transformation ground control uh Kyler, thanks again for being here.
2: Thank you for having me
1: absolutely and we'll hope to hope to have you maybe you and Prisa both on on some of the shows going forward uh, now that she's she's coming back uh, as we speak from maternity leave so we can start to see a little bit of her her face as well. And uh, we will look forward to that. So we'll see you. We'll see you all next week. Hope you have a great week. And thanks for listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll see you soon.